We are going to get to work in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Let me re-catch you up uh, quickly on uh, where we are. So in the the first book, this series of the book of Acts, we've seen that it was written by Luke, uh, who wrote Luke's gospel, and it makes up 30 years of salvation history. And the event that begins the book of Acts really is Jesus' ascension. Jesus tells his disciples about the kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus Christ from heaven, which the uh, disciples are told, the 12, 12 disciples, 12 apostles, uh, we've only got 11 in this text, you'll see, see why, they are told to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they will be Jesus' witnesses to the end of the earth. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, that's in verses 9 to 11, to take up his kingship and to pray for his church and for his people. And what follows now is one of those texts that is very easy to blow right through on the way to Acts chapter 2. We see the ascension, we see that's the big thing, and it's very easy to just skip from verses 12 right through to 26 in Acts chapter 1 and get to what is deemed the good stuff in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Acts 2 is exciting, it is bold it is the church has formed some of the most scandalous hard-hitting sermons begin getting preached in acts chapter 2 it is a lot happening there are baptisms there are all those things happening and this bit here verses 12 to 26 at the end of chapter 1 is easy to skip over as I've studied this more and more over the past uh, week and really the past few weeks, I've started to see, wow, there are so many important things happening here in chapter 1. We've got to look at chapter 1 before we get to chapter 2. We have to. A few things here that take place that can shift our orientation and realign with what God deems is truly important. What I'm going to do is we're going to treat this as kind of two sermons. We're going to do two shorter sermons, and we're going to do verses 12 to 14 in one go, and then we're going to do 15 to 26 in another go, because they're two different events. There's a period of a few days, we don't know how long, in between verses 14 and 15. And that little blank space is a few days. So they're two different events, and we'll look at them separately. Let's look at the the first three verses from verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus and his others. That is the first section. 
Jesus had given these apostles a commission in verse 8 of chapter 1. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses, that's an important word, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That's the apostolic commission. This is what he wanted them to do. And that's exactly what they do, the first thing they do. They go back to the city of Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's walk. Around about a kilometer, they walk back. And they go to the place where they were staying, called the upper room. Very likely, but we can't be sure, this is the place where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, the upper room. And they have a prayer meeting. That's what they do. They don't go back and just wait. They go back and they have a prayer meeting. And there's a number of things that we can note in this text that are helpful to us. Remember that Jesus, in his ascension, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and we said the first thing that means for us is that he prays for his people, and he prays for his church. John in John in First uh, John chapter two says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus takes his place as the advocate who prays on behalf of the people. And that's an important thing that we need to realize, is that any time we as believers are praying to God, we're praying to Jesus Christ, Jesus has first prayed on our behalf. Our prayers are heard and answered because Jesus has first prayed for us, seating at the right hand of God. He has said, you belong to me, I have died for you. We will give them what they ask in my name. The ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father provides the basis for the church to begin praying. And it gives the basis that their prayers will be answered. And so they pray, and they pray boldly. We see that there are 11 disciples. If you are tired, this is an impossible thing to work out. Try and count the names. You'll notice that there's actually about 13 names there, but there's actually 11 of those are disciples. If you know the Bible, how many disciples were there originally? Twelve. And Judas is not with them. Judas has died. We'll get to that soon. Another thing to notice is that it's not just these 11 apostles that remain, it says in verse 14, it says there are woman and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers, literally siblings. Mark tells us that Jesus had at least three brothers. Mary and Joseph, contrary to what the Catholic Church will tell you, had children together. Okay? Mary was not a virgin for the rest of her life after the virgin birth. She had children. These are Jesus' brothers. And this should cause us to say, wow. Jesus' brothers were there because they became Christians. They became believers in the deity of their brother. How many only children are there in the room? Dude, you've got three sisters. You've got sisters, okay? 
I'm the only child in the room. That means everyone here at least has had one sibling. How confident are you that you are able to convince your brothers or your sisters that you are the Son of God? That is an amazing, amazing apologetic testimony for the fact that Jesus is who he says he was. His brothers believed him to be the Son of God. That was not always the case. But eventually, After the resurrection, they came to believe that their brother, who they grew up with, who they played hide-and-seek with, was actually the Son of God. James, we are told, was thrown from the church in Jerusalem, from the top of the building, and died. James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The Church of Jesus Christ at Jerusalem. He became the leader of the church in his brother's name. And he was killed for it. The only way you go into business with your brother and say that he actually is the Son of God is if you stand to make a lot of money and get a lot of fame out of it. Not that you get killed. So this is an amazing thing that Jesus' brothers are with him with the rest of the disciples praying. And it's also important for us to note that there are women in there praying, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there too. Luke mentions women more than any other gospel, and it is clear here that women are praying. The women, the early disciples, were prayers. They were allowed to pray out loud. They prayed together. This is a wonderful calling for women to have, to be women of prayer. All the people were praying, men and women. There's no hierarchy here amongst the disciples in who prays. That is a good thing. They are said to be praying with one accord, Some of your translations will say they prayed with one mind. They seek unity in what they were praying for. Nothing displays the unity of doctrine and spirit and fellowship of the church more than praying together. It's funny if you have an argument with someone or you have a dispute or you have some kind of broken relationship, it becomes very difficult to pray with that person. Few things display unity better than prayer together, especially in smaller groups. It is impossible to pray together after a quarrel and remain in a quarrel. It is very, very hard to do. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. This is, they persevered. They kept going. They kept going. God had promised the church blessings. He would promised these apostles that he would build the church, that he would send the Holy Spirit, that people would come to know Christ, that the kingdom of God would expand. They began praying for it. They also had reason to pray for the calling of a new apostle. But sufficient to say, this is like a little child knocking and asking, Dada, Mama, give me what you promised. 
If you've ever promised your child something, you've asked, you said you'll give them a, a sweet or you give them something, and then you don't follow through, they'll look at you and they'll ask over and over, but you promised. How could you? Nothing like a three, four, five, or six-year-old to appear stabbed in the heart when you let them down for even a moment. The church prayed this way. God, you promised. You promised. I believe you're good. I believe you keep your word. Give me what you've promised. This is how the church prayed. That is the word that's being used. They devoted themselves to prayer. James in James 4.2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. God is glorified and we are to be encouraged to ask for God to provide the blessings that he has promised. And the church does this. One commentator says on this verse, Prayer is not a sign of doubting. But it is a witness to our certain hope and confidence since we ask of the Lord the things we know he has promised. This happens many times in the Old Testament. And one of the key ways we can see this is in Exodus chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. But God always intended to take the nation of Israel out of Egypt and slavery and put them in their own land of Canaan. That was that throughout the early part of the Old Testament, he always intended to do it. God's intention was not that Israel would remain in Egypt under slavery and keep staying there and just grow and grow and grow for thousands of years. That was never God's intention. He always planned, like he promised Abraham, that he would give this nation of Israel the land of Canaan, and he would put them in it. But before God raised up Moses to help carry out the exodus of Israel into the promised land, he laid it upon the hearts of the people to cry out and pray for that very thing. During Exodus 2, during the many days the during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. I love that verse. And what it's saying is God has promised to bless these people, but he makes them ask for it first, and then he delivers them. We see this here in Acts chapter 1. They're praying for God's blessings that he has promised. And so I will say, I am the first person to stand up and say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what forms the church. The gospel forms the church with the work of the Holy Spirit. But Acts chapter 2, where the church is formed, comes after Acts chapter 1. And what Acts chapter 1 tells us is that before the church is formed, it is first birthed in prayer. The church of Jesus Christ is birthed in prayer and then formed through the gospel and the Spirit. 
never lose sight of that. Let's read verses 15 to 26 of Acts 1 as they choose a replacement for Judas. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and in falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This has been a passage that is frequently overlooked, frequently condemned. People say that the disciples made a mistake here, uh, frequently skipped over, especially by people of the fundamentalist persuasion. They think the casting of lots is very akin to gambling. That's bad, in their view. It's a complicated little text. To many, but it's it's not. It's not. Peter takes up leadership and he stands up. We see in the the apostles there is a, a first among equals. Peter has the chair position. He is the leader. And it is amazing that he takes this role because we know who is the man that denied Jesus. It was Peter. But Jesus restored him after his three denials. But this is an ordinary man, not a brilliant man. This is an ordinary man, and he's been chosen by God to do a task. And he stands up and talks to this group. We now have 120 people gathered here in Jerusalem. There are likely as many as 500 believers. And we can, we can get this from the end of Luke and then also from 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses. And so you're asking yourself, if there are 120 here in Jerusalem, where's the other 380? The answer is likely in Galilee. 
the majority of the church were actually likely found in Galilee, which is where one of, one of Jesus' resurrection appearances occurred. But there were 120 in Jerusalem. And the book of Acts, remember, it starts in Jerusalem and goes out. So it makes sense that they start with the 120. And Peter says, we must choose a replacement for Judas. We need a 12th apostle. Judas's story is that he betrayed Jesus for some pieces of silver. He led the high priests and the Romans to Jesus and uh, betrayed him in accordance with biblical prophecy. And so overcome by guilt as he realized who he had betrayed, he went and bought a field with his money and he hung himself. One of those most jarring verses in scripture. Judas went and hung himself. He killed himself in guilt. Now everyone would have known that detail. That was the story everyone heard about. Why would Luke put this in the book of Acts? It's because he is writing history. He wants us to know 2,000 years later. And what, what makes Peter stand up and say, we must pick another apostle? Some people have said that Peter was out of line in doing this. We need to remember that the apostles did not have 66 books of Bible nicely published by Crossway in, in their hands. They didn't have that. They certainly did not have Google and smartphones. So they were reliant upon the Old Testament scriptures. And specifically the Psalms would have been part of the scriptures that would have been read, they would have been sung, they would have been memorized by the apostles, including Peter. And so after Jesus, after Jesus' death, Peter heads back and starts fishing. And he would have been thinking on the Psalms and things, singing Psalms, and he obviously he'd memorized them, and he would have been thinking about all that had taken place. And Peter came to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Those are the Psalms which are quoted in verse 20. Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, verse 8. And it is from the Psalms that Peter determined they needed to hire and appoint a replacement for Judas. And we see and over the last few few months, we did a nine-part series on the Psalms, and we saw that so often, the life of David is mirrored in the life of Jesus. And much of what David, what David writes down actually winds up becoming prophetic of Jesus. And in these two Psalms, we see that the righteous, God's righteous servant, has enemies. And that is what is being talked about here. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. No one to dwell in his land. This is an opponent of God's righteous servant, David. And then in verse uh, the, the latter part, in Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. God's righteous servant, David, has enemies and this Enemy dies, 
there's another person come into this person's office. Peter realizes that this is actually a prophecy. It says in verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter realizes that what David was writing actually, yes, it referred to David's situation, but it also referred ahead to Jesus and Judas betraying him, who is the enemy of God's righteous servant, Judas. And so Peter says, let another take his office. We, the eleven apostles, and now the leaders of the church, while our Lord is in heaven, we must decide who the twelfth apostle must be. There are twelve tribes of Israel. Each had a man as its head. Tribes of Benjamin and Judah and all those things. And it makes sense now in the formation of the church that there would be twelve apostles. Something of God's picture of these twelve would be missing to only have eleven. So Peter was absolutely in line. So we have to ask, why did they decide right then and there when the 120 were gathered that they needed a new apostle? Did Jesus tell them directly, hire a 12th man? No. Did they just feel the need? Did they think it was a good idea? Did an angel appear to them and tell them, you must appoint a 12th apostle? No, none of them. They believed the Bible said so. The reason Peter got up is because he said he was seeking to be faithful to God's revealed will in his word. We need to always begin there. What does God want me to do? Read this. And this is not discounting the Holy Spirit at all because Because it is said in verse 16, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Who authored scripture? David writing under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. You want to read how that works out? You can check out the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. It's on the internet. You can read it. That gives a full summary of how that all worked. The church began in prayer and in seeking to be faithful to God's word. Hugely, hugely important. If it is in there, we must do it. And I will go so far as to say that the first person that we disrespect when we ignore scripture is the Holy Spirit. Because he is the author of scripture. He illuminates it. He wrote it. We disrespect the spirit when we leave the word out. Charismatic type churches, Pentecostal type churches, there should be churches of the word. And I'm surprised when I see some that just ignore the word completely. And on the other side of that, churches that are just all about the Bible and they never talk about the Holy Spirit, that's wrong too. You have a divine book written by the Spirit. Seek to do what it says. 
the qualifications for this 12th apostle are listed in verses 21 and 22. They had to be witnesses from the ministry of John the Baptist. You can read about that in Luke 3 or John chapter 1. Right until the day when he was taken up, and these men also needed to be witnesses of the resurrection. And that makes total sense. Because Jesus says in verse 8, You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It makes sense that they actually were required to have witnessed Jesus' ministry and seen him after he rose again. Makes complete sense to us. They had to be witnesses to things that they had actually seen. And if no one had seen Jesus, the church would not have gotten off the ground. It's true. And that is why the apostolic era died out when all the apostles died. They were witness to Jesus' ministry and to his resurrection. And their purpose was for the founding of the church. It was required that they be witnesses so that they could bear witness. I saw it with my own eyes. I am willing to die for this truth. And so it was that the church began. Two men were put forward. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Crazy to have three names. One of them is Barsabbas. It means of the Sabbath. He was probably born on a Saturday in the Jewish. And then also Justice, a Latin name. And then a man called Matthias. Very likely these were the only two men qualified to be apostles. They had a job description. They had a character description. And so, who's seen Jesus from in these time periods? Very likely only these two men existed. Some have said that they, Peter acted hastily in saying this and he should have waited for a man like the Apostle Paul to be, uh, by God, placed in the apostleship. But Paul was at this point killing Christians and he was not qualified. Not qualified at all. He had not seen the risen Lord. And that's why Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion is so important. So, they sought to be obedient to God's word. They prayed. They came up with two candidates, probably the only two candidates, and they sought God. And then they cast lots. Now, casting lots appears very much like gambling. It was used in places like 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, where the, the, the priest cast lots. And the reason it existed was to give an unbiased, non-political decision. Can you imagine if Joseph and Matthias did an American presidential campaign and started paying off people to vote for them? Wouldn't have gone well. Wouldn't have gone well at all. This has place in Jewish history to to be a sacred form of decision-making, and I'm not saying we should start doing this. But in Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. 
They believed that God's hand was sovereign when, say, two pieces of clay were put into a pot and an inscription was put on them, the names were put on them, and they were put in, and in, and one of the pieces was drawn. That's what casting lots might have been, or a shorter stick and a longer stick. They believed that God was sovereign over the decision-making. Now, if they'd simply cast lots and that's all they'd done, it would have been a very unbiblical, unpleasing to the Lord form of decision-making, I believe. But they're clearly seeking to obey God's word in prayer, in seeking qualified candidates only, and trusting that God would show his will in this process. They did what they could to be faithful, and they left the result up to the Lord. And so, the lot fell on Matthias, and Matthias became the twelfth apostle. I was thinking to myself this week, imagine what it would have been like being Joseph. Imagine what it would have liked being Joseph. 120 people in that room. Two men qualified to be apostles. The biggest name in the church at the time would be an apostle. One was chosen, one was not. Someone got this immense role and someone was passed over. Grace was needed that the church would not fall apart. A bigger vision was needed so that the church would not fall apart. Can you imagine if Joseph said, this is rubbish, I am over it, I'm going to go start my own cult. Some would do that. And we need to ask ourselves the question, can we celebrate the success and the gifts and the talents of others? Maybe someone gets picked to do something that you yourself wanted to do. Can you handle that? I know it's especially tough for young men when they're going for pastor's roles and one person gets it and the other person doesn't. It's especially difficult. And I've been, even in this church, I've been glad to see men have grace, have a bigger vision, have selflessness that they do not blow the church up when, when they're told, no, we've gone with this man, not you. The only way that we can celebrate the successes of others when we ourselves are not successful is by having a vision greater than ourselves. The gospel of the kingdom allows us to do that. Jesus lived, he lived the perfect life, he died upon a cross, he rose to the He rose again from the dead, having paid for the sins of us. He reconciles us to God. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He takes the kingship over his kingdom, and it shall grow until he returns again, and he will rule over it. That is the gospel of the kingdom. And we live in it by faith in the king. That means that as his disciples, we're not here for empire building. We're not in it for our own name. 
We're not in it to make ourselves famous. We're not in it to make ourselves look good. We're in it to make him look good because he is good. That's what happens. We cannot forget who the kingdom is for. Interesting here in Acts chapter 1. Mary, the mother of Jesus, a woman who is over, overly venerated by Catholics and under-venerated by Protestants, is never mentioned again chronologically. But more important on the topic of the apostles, 12 apostles here, only Peter, James, and John are mentioned again. This book is called the Acts of the Apostles, and nine of them are not mentioned about. You look for Matthias' name, this is the last time it's in there. Acts chapter 1. He is appointed, he goes into history, his name doesn't matter. It's huge. They weren't in it for fame, they were in it for the fame of Jesus' name. I think Acts chapter 1 calls us to have a big vision of God. It calls us to have a big trust in God. It calls us to have a, a big understanding of the kingdom of God. It calls us to pray boldly and live ordinary lives with bold faith. That is what we see. We're not about ourselves. We're to live lives of ordinary faithfulness, boldly trusting in our extraordinary God. Let's pray.